I want to start off this morning by quizzing you a little bit. Not really. You don't need to respond back. But do you know what is the number one reason why people leave a church? And I'm talking about Christians, not people who've simply stopped believing in God and kind of fallen away from their faith, but people who consider themselves genuine followers of Jesus. What's the number one reason that they leave church? It's not because of actually style of worship. It's not because of differences of theology or politics. It's not because of an unmet need that they felt the church didn't do for them. Not because people are too busy or not because they move out from the area. According to a recent research survey, the number one reason why committed followers of Jesus will leave a church is over conflict with another member. Maybe they've gone through a breakup. Maybe they've had a falling out. Maybe they've had a divorce. Oftentimes people feel offended or hurt or cheated. And some people, as they're exiting the doors, they kick over the chairs and kick over the people as they leave. But many more just quietly disappear and don't come back. And so the question we want to answer this morning is, how does a gospel-shaped community handle grievances between believers? And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn in it this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're in this series called Clear, where we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict how to see our lives through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And we've seen in chapters 1 through 5 that the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church in this big city, this metropolitan city of Corinth, that instead of being blinded by the values of the world, how to see clearly through the, our identity in Christ, that as we experience being loved and forgiven and accepted and transformed through the cross, that Jesus guides us and grows us in both holiness and unity together so that we're distinct from the world around us. And over the last few chapters, he's been teaching us how does that practically apply? What does that look like? That's a nice theological concept that our identity in Jesus defines us and guides us, but how does that apply to issues like division within the church or sin issues? And today he's bringing up another problem that's permeating the church that not only are they failing to judge sin within the church, but they're also failing to uh, be able to judge uh, disputes amongst them within the church and taking it outside. They're turning to worldly judges, worldly values, worldly wisdom to solve their disputes. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to, to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more? than matters pertaining to this life. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? So let's stop right there for a moment. We see in verse 1, Paul, he is ticked off. He is incensed that instead of dealing with disagreements together in the family of Christ, that the believers in the Corinthian church are escalating their issues into nasty lawsuits outside of church, in front of the whole world. And I want you to get the picture of this, why this is a big deal. You see, back then in their culture, in the 
every city province that's been colonized by the Roman Empire, uh, what, the way that it works was Roman court would be held in the public square, in the public marketplace, so that anyone could come in and actually watch. And actually, they invited that kind of thing because a lot of times people would come and it was like watching a debate and they, they would actually get the audience to participate as the jury. So you could have small cases where juries would come and a lot of audience members would be pulled to, in to participate, like 25, 50, 100 people. Sometimes with criminal cases, there would be like 1,000 people participating in the jury in major metropolitan cities. So many people would come to the public square to come and watch these trials as entertainment. And so it's the ancient equivalent of reality TV or Judge Judy on TV. Uh, I know she's not here anymore, but that's exactly what it looked like for them because they didn't have other kinds of entertainment. So in verses 2 and 3, Paul is shocked because these Christians are called to be saints. Some of you grew up in a Catholic background, and you think of saints as somebody is holy and above and special. But the Bible tells us that all believers, all who come to follow Jesus, Jesus calls them saints, because the word there literally means holy ones, or those who are set apart. Being holy means to be set apart for Jesus, which is every one of us who follows Jesus and puts our trust in him. And so the idea here is Paul is shocked because you guys, you're saints. You're set apart for Jesus. You're called to stand out from the world, called to stand out to the world in your holiness and unity, we saw in chapter 1, verse 2, the theme verse of the whole book. And he says that you as saints who are set apart for Jesus have authority from Jesus to participate in the final judgment of the entire world, and even judging fallen angels, we see in Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And so his point here is that if you saints who are set apart for Jesus and given the authority of Jesus in such big matters, if God has given you responsibility in matters of eternal importance, shouldn't you be able to resolve earthly matters of much lesser importance? Now, I don't want you to get me wrong because uh, you and I, we've heard many horror stories about churches that try to handle things and mishandle things internally. Churches that have covered up issues of embezzlement or abuse or sexual abuse or sexual misconduct. And so what I want you to see here is Paul is not saying don't seek intervention from the appropriate authorities. Don't go to the police. Don't go to a court over things like that. He's not talking about criminal cases. When, when a crime is committed, you go to the, uh, submit yourselves to the appropriate authorities for help. But what he's talking about here is civil cases. Look at verse 2. He's astonished that they are incompetent to try trivial cases. Now, literally in the original language, that word is the smallest of claim courts. That's literally what those words mean. In other words, this is, he's not talking about when somebody's committed murder or somebody's committed rape or something terrible like that, but he's talking about small claims courts, the very lowest of the courts, literally it says in the original language, that is used for disputes about money, about property, about having your, somebody take your honor away from you. And so, and he reiterates that in verse 3. These are matters pertaining to this life. In other words, when people are bickering over everyday issues. So I want you to distinguish. He's not saying don't go to the proper authorities about, over criminal issues. He's talking about civil issues. So when your neighbor borrows your plow and he's a Christian, he wrecks your plow, and then what do you do? You take him to court. Or when somebody insults your mom at church and you take them to court because they've insulted your honor, your family honor. When somebody owes you money, taking them to court over these kind of things. And so 
What we see in the Bible is that you can go to court when it's a criminal issue because Paul himself appealed to the Roman justice system when he was wrongfully arrested. But he is saying in verse 4, when you're disagreeing about a personal matter, about personal property, about your personal rights between Christians, don't turn to those outside of the church who have no spiritual discernment to solve these issues because it reflects poorly on Jesus and his work in us. So instead, the big idea of this whole passage this morning is that because we are saints set apart for Jesus, remember, that not means you're super holy compared to everybody else. A saint is somebody who is set apart for Jesus, follower of Jesus, because we're set apart for him, that empowered by the wisdom and authority and grace of Jesus, then we are to resolve the disputes between us to the glory of Jesus. And here's the big issue. This is why we get into uh, sometimes mixed up with legal proceedings or when, when we feel hurt or offended or cheated, even by a brother or sister in Christ. The big issue is that we tend to act like the world around us by insisting on our own rights. Now, you and I, we may not drag someone to court to get money out of them, but I wonder what price do you make other people pay when they wrong you? Even within the church, I sometimes see people resort to gossip or slander about somebody who's done them wrong. We become vindictive or critical or contemptuous towards that person. Maybe we stonewall them, just shun them and avoid them. I can go my, for a year at church and just not talk to this person. Or sometimes that person knows they do wrong, and what kind of hoops do you make them jump through in order to make them pay a little bit for what they've done to you? Do you see the issue here is that people see, you don't think that people, other people notice, but people see how we treat that man who owes us an apology or owes us money. The way we make them pay and how it's no different than dragging someone to court. And I want to ask you, what does that say to your kids? What does that say to your friends? What does that say to your coworker who's not a Christian about Jesus and about Christians who are supposedly set apart for him? And on the flip side, if Paul is saying that as followers of Jesus, we're called to resolve our disputes together within the body of Christ, when you see that other people at church are having an unresolved conflict, maybe you're, you're like me, it's easy for us to just kind of turn a blind eye. Culturally, we don't want to get involved, we don't want to make a scene, we don't want to, you know, embarrass other people, so I'll just ignore it and pretend like I don't know what's happening between those two people. But just as we have the authority to deal with sin together in the church in chapter 5, we also have the responsibility here to deal with disputes together. To maybe be that person that Jesus sends to offer a cooler head. To offer God's love, God's wisdom, God's word, God's grace. To help mediate that difference. Don't bury your head in the sand. You see, when we're offended when we're hurt, when we're cheated by others. This is when the gospel's really put to, put to the test. Whether or not you really live in and believe in the unearned grace and kindness and acceptance and forgiveness of Jesus. Okay, Paul, you're telling us don't take it to court if we have kind of issues between us, don't, don't make people pay in an ungodly way, but, and just try to work out our differences because we love Jesus, we should love each other, but, but what if we can't resolve our issue? Look at verse 5. 
Paul's, sorry, I apologize in advance. Paul's going to kind of put it to us this morning. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one amongst you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, the brothers or sisters in Christ? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not, rather, suffer wrong? Why not, rather, be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. In verse 5 and 6, Paul's not holding back with us. The apostle is kind of taking it to the Corinthian Christians. Uh, It's shameful that you cannot find someone at church with enough of God's wisdom to help you settle these disputes. Really, the entire church, nobody has any wisdom from God to help you figure things out together. Instead, you're resorting to dragging this mess and the name of Jesus through the mud in front of, an, of all, this, all the unbelieving world around us. And so at the beginning of verse 7, he says, no matter who wins this case legally as a church, you all have already lost spiritually. You see, he's not just talking to those who are having the dispute, he's talking to the whole church that you failed to exert the very holiness and unity that you were called to as saints, as those set apart for Jesus together, that we saw in chapter 1, verse 2. And you're living as if you don't have Jesus, you don't have his goodness, you don't have his grace to change you and to guide you. And it is a terrible testimony to the world about Jesus. And so he says instead, and I want you to catch this, when you're dealing with disputes over being deprived of your rights, the being deprived of your money or your property or your dignity. In verses 7, the second half of verse 7 and 8, it's better if you were to reflect Jesus and the apostles we saw in chapter 4, verse 9 through 13, their undeserved suffering for the sake of others. Better for you to, be, to suffer wrong and be defrauded than to do wrong and defraud your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this is very interesting because you would think if we're talking about grievances or or complaints or uh, conflict within church, Paul would address the person who is the offender, the person who's been sinning against the other person, right? But instead, he talks to the person who's offended because he wants them. Sometimes we think it's only the person who's done wrong that needs to to, to follow Jesus, but oftentimes it is the very person who feels offended who often is the one that needs to also turn back to Jesus and hear what God has to say to them this morning. Because what's happening here is there's times a situation gets so heated that there's no simple compromise. And so the point of this section is that for you, even when you're the one who's being offended, you're the victim, you're the one who's been hurt in this this situation. As a person who's been set apart for Jesus, we want to be humble and self-sacrificial with our rights just like Jesus is in disputes. That there's something about us that wants to defend our own honor, that wants what we deserve, that wants things to be fair, that wants to take our pound of flesh from someone. But Jesus is not kidding when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 40, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I, Jesus, tell you, do not resist the evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, bless you, then turn the other to them also. Now, hear this part. The rest of the verse, sometimes we're not as familiar with this part because we get stuck on the, turn the other cheek. No, thank you. Jesus continues, if anyone wants to sue you, take you to court, and take your shirt, hand over your court to them as well. Now, 
you need to hear me very clearly because sometimes we misunderstand this kind of a passage. Jesus is not saying, ignore the evil done to you. He's not saying that. Like, just let people kick you in the teeth and like, oh, you're, thank you for that. Instead, what he's saying, you remember last week we talked about this, that Jesus calls us to confront sin honestly in, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 18, he says to call evil for what it is. And later in that same passage, though, he also calls us to forgive generously. Confront sin honestly, forgive generously, to release people from the debt they owe. Now, here's the problem for us, or maybe, maybe it's just me. But when somebody tells me something like that, when somebody does something that hurts me or offends me, and I'm supposed to just let it go, in the back of my mind, but that's not fair. It's not fair. That's the, he's the person who did wrong, not me. Why do I have to pay? But I want you to think carefully about this attitude. If we were treated fairly before God, the reality is that all of us deserve condemnation and are supposed to pay because we all sin. How often has Jesus had to turn the other cheek because I slap him with my sins? And yet when we come to him, he forgives us because, catch this now, it is grace, not condemnation, that transforms us. Brenton Wynn was a 23-year-old young man angry at God. He was angry at God over his own sin. He was angry that God had let him relapse back into a methamphetamine addiction. And so high as a kite, one February night, he decided to get back at God, and he broke into Central Baptist Church of Conway, Arkansas, went on a rampage, and destroyed $100,000 worth of church property. Now, the senior pastor Don Chandler, he talked to the prosecutor, and he knew that the godly response was that they they should offer forgiveness instead of judgment. And so he said, you know, I can't preach grace for 50 years at his church without practicing it, especially in front of my whole church. Judge, this young man, he made a mistake. He made several mistakes. He's on drugs and alcohol, and yet we believe that he's still redeemable by God. And so he told the court that the church would like instead for this man to get help at Renewal Ranch, which is this faith-based residential recovery program for addicts. It's a ministry. And so the judge gave uh, young Brenton an option. You can go to jail, potentially for up to 20 years, or you can voluntarily choose to go to the ranch. So he chose the ranch. Now at this ranch, one of the requirements was that he attend Bible study every night, which he didn't like as much. But over time, as he heard about the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, late one night at one of the Bible studies, he received Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. Now, you may think, well, you know, a lot of times people go to prison, they'll say and do anything just to make themselves look better, to get maybe a shortened time or be able to meet the qualification or requirements. (coughs) Excuse me. But after a while, with other residents from that recovery program, he started attending Central Baptist Church on Wednesday evenings for their Wednesday night services. And he chose to get baptized at the very same church that he had broken into six months earlier. And he says, I don't know what happened, but when I gave my heart to Jesus, I used to think that it was a coincidence that I happened to break into this church. 
But now I call it confirmation that God is real, that He answers prayers, that He showed me I need a relationship with Jesus. And as I've started to understand how God works, I realize I didn't pick that church that night, but God picked me. Because if it had been any other church, I would be sitting in prison right now. It's the grace of God, the transforming power of that. You see, when our rights, when our hearts are violated, our self-centered values are quick to to demand justice. I know, at least for me, it is. But as a gospel-shaped community, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Now, I want you to hear me. That doesn't mean when somebody hurts you or wrongs you. We don't make excuses for them. We don't condone abusive behavior or toxic behavior. But it does mean that we want to be humbly sacrificial like Jesus. That I don't always have to get our way. We don't have to insist on our rights. We can release people from our debt because it's grace, not condemnation, that transforms people and sets them free. Pastor Josh, that sounds real good. But how do I even get there? Because that doesn't seem fair. If someone wounds me, somebody takes advantage of me, I'm just supposed to let it go? I can't do that. You can. And here's how. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 9, Paul warns the Corinthian church, don't you know that the unrighteous, now this sounds like a very judgmental word, but all it means is people who haven't received the righteousness of God, that's all of us before we met Jesus, who haven't received the righteousness of God by simply faith in Jesus, who are relying on our own ability and morality, that who haven't, because we don't have Jesus' righteousness, we don't receive eternal life in his kingdom. Well, how do I know if that's me? What if I, how do I know if I'm the unrighteous one? Paul lists some symptoms of that. In verse 10, here's some sins that are considered socially acceptable. We saw this in chapter 5, verse 11. Sexual immorality, including homosexuality and heterosexual adultery. God doesn't distinguish between your sexual orientation when it comes to sexual sins. Idolatry, people who worship false gods or worship money, who worship comfort, who worship their ambition people who are unrepentantly alcoholic, drunks, and addicted, and don't want to change. Now, if you're anything like me, you you should feel like, this sounds like Paul is kind of being random, like he just switched topics. But I I want you to remember, who is he addressing in this passage? Last chapter, chapter 5, he confronted the sins of those who are the offenders. But we've been watching throughout this passage that Paul is talking now to the sins of those who've been offended. And what I mean by that is, in this list of sins that we see that those who follow Jesus would agree, those are grievous sins, sexual immorality sins, idolatry sins. He also lists sins that are common to people in the middle of a dispute. 
stealing money or property out of greed. Reviling, he says. This is when people are angry and argumentative and vindictive against one another. Swindlers, people who are taking advantage of someone else, using and abusing people for my own benefit, especially when I think I have the moral high ground. You ever watch two people in an argument and you know like one party is wrong? As a pastor, I've seen this happen many times. Husband and wife having a big argument and one of the spouses like did something terrible, said something terrible. And then the other person says something so outrageous, it's kind of like, whoa, you just lost the moral high ground. That's what a reviler looks like. That's what Paul is talking about here. When we don't handle grievances the right way, You see, all these self-serving, self-indulgent sins, seeking gratification, seeking validation, seeking our vindication now, he's saying in these verses that you're cashing out your internal inheritance for the immediate payoff, that in the midst of disputes, just so that you can be right, just so that you can get the satisfaction, your satisfaction unrighteously now, just so that you can make them pay right now by taking their money, their property, taking advantage of that person, acting selfishly, acting cruelly. And the warning that Paul is giving in this passage is, are you living like someone who hasn't received Jesus, his righteousness, his eternal life? And the warning to the Corinthian believers, if you're having these kind of disputes where you can't handle it, there's no grace, there's no uh, kindness or acceptance, there's no wisdom from God, you're in danger. You may not actually be a genuine follower of Jesus because you're definitely not living like In verse 11, Paul says, some of you have had those sins, but all of us are slaves to some sin. And the key, if you look at verse 11, is that, but in Christ, you are washed clean. You are sanctified. That means that God has made you holy by God. You are justified. That means that you're made right with God. And I want you to notice that he writes that as if it's a done deal. He writes it in the past tense. And that's really important for us to recognize because that means if God has already done this, he's made us right, he's made us holy before him in the past so that our future can be different. So the choices we make, the direction we go can be be changed. That we need to understand that at the cross, Jesus trades his righteousness for our sinfulness so that now that we receive Jesus, we don't have to be enslaved to live like that anymore. Even in the ways that we treat people when we have a dispute or grievance. So Paul's asking us to remember, because you've been cleansed in Christ, you are transformed and empowered by the cross, that you don't have to be sinful in your disputes, just like the world around us. You don't have to handle disputes the way that everybody else does, because it's no longer compatible with our lives in Jesus when we've been washed clean by Jesus as his continuing work in our lives. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, Jesus illustrates this with a story of a servant who owes his master this enormous debt that's impossible for him to repay in the millions of dollars. Even in the ancient Near East culture, that would be like owing a billion dollars to to someone, (laughs) adjusting for inflation. And yet, this master forgives this servant. And yet, that same man turns around and he chokes out a fellow servant who owes him like five bucks. And the master says to him, you wicked servant, I forgave all that debt. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Read that as, 
your fellow servant in Christ, in the church, as I had on you. And as a result, what does the master do? He sends his, his uh, servant to prison, where he is in torment until he's able to pay off his entire debt, which is never. He will never be able to pay that off. Because that's what happens when we come before God and say that, well, if all the debts I owe you for sin, all the offenses I've done against you, what if I can pay it off by my own good works? Because that's how every religion in the world works. That if I can be good enough, if I try hard enough, I can climb up all the religious rules, up the religious ladder, and earn my way to heaven and pay off my debts. And God says, it's impossible. It's impossible for everyone. That the that the only fate possible if you rely on your own morality and ability is that paying off your own debts, you'll never be able to do it. You're going to be in a prison, in torment, separated from the life, the love of God. And that's exactly why instead of having to climb up, instead he sends his son Jesus to reach down to us, to extend a hand to us, to lift us up into his righteousness, his forgiveness, and his grace. And so if we really love and belong to our master, if we understand the depth of our sinfulness and the breadth of his forgiveness, then it'll be reflected in how we treat grievances, especially with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you know my background is in counseling, and so I read a lot of articles about psychology, and one of the things that therapists tell us is that there are four common ways that people deal with conflict. Some of you who've gone through premarital counseling with me know this. Number one, some people fight to win. It's that men mentality like, you have a dispute, I have to win, you have to lose. I'm right and you're wrong. And some of you are feeling <laughs> personally attacked right now. I'm not talking about you personally, right? But that, that fight to win mentality is where I have to, being right is more important than being close in a relationship with you. Did you hear that? When you fight to win and that's how you resolve conflicts, being right is more important than being in a relationship. Some of us, when we face conflict, we withdraw. And we're saying, I'm uncomfortable, so I'm going to physically leave the room or emotionally leave this relationship. Because feeling safe is more important than feeling close. Some of us, when we face conflict, we yield. Okay, uh, I'm not going to do I win, you lose. You win, and I lose. And whatever you want is fine. And so we give in to the other person's demands instead of risking the risk that comes with fighting it out or, or losing that person because being accepted is more important than being honest and connected. And finally, psychology tells us there's some of us who are able to safely or wisely navigate to be able to lovingly resolve conflicts. Instead of seeing the person as the problem, we are so, see ourselves as the same team and the issue is the problem. And so we're able to work at carefully and sensitively understand the other person, and discuss it. And what's key, what's interesting, is that even when secular psychologists talk about it, they recognize a very biblical value, that in order to get there, it requires genuine humility, where the relationship is a higher priority than the conflict, where we value genuine relationship more than winning, more than losing, more than escaping, more than being comfortable. And so I want to ask you this morning, when you have a grievance with someone, which of these four directions do you tend to go?
Are you a fight to win? Are you someone who withdraws? Are you someone who yields just to avoid conflict? Or do you know how to, in humility and self-sacrifice, resolve things with someone? How do you stop taking someone's money or property or taking advantage of someone who owes you? How do you stop acting selfishly and cruelly with someone who hurts you? It's by remembering the good news about Jesus, how much his forgiveness, his acceptance, his kindness has been poured out on all of my offenses because his cleansing, forgiving grace is what empowers ours. I'm not good at this either. I don't know about you. I think about all the times that within my own literal family, that is also my family in Christ, with my wife, even with my young children, how easy it is for me to insist on my rights. And I wonder sometimes for myself, is it more valuable to me to receive the blessing of God or to receive my pound of flesh? Because that's the choice we're making when we don't resolve disputes well. So I want you to be clear about how to handle disputes within the body of Christ. When you're offended, when you're hurt, when you're cheated, is when the gospel is really put to test in our hearts and in our lives. And we've seen in the last two chapters that the Christian community takes sin seriously, but we also handle it graciously. And I wonder this morning if there's an unresolved grievance with someone in the body of Christ that you need to deal with some issue that you need to bring to the cross, to surrender to Jesus, to resolve humbly and sacrificially with that person. And so I want to invite you this morning, would you take a few minutes during this next song to genuinely deal with God this morning? For some of you, it is that person that you drove to church with that you said nothing to because you were ticked off this morning. Don't let that conflict continue any longer. Remember that you are saints, set apart for Jesus, empowered by the wisdom, authority, and grace of Jesus, and called to resolve disputes to the glory of Jesus. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. It's very convicting, but also very painful. It seems impossible. And we thank you because... To be perfectly honest, by our own human effort, it is impossible for, at times for us to resolve our differences, even with people we love, even with people within the family of Christ. And so we come before you first and ask this morning, would you remind us again of the beauty and the reality of the gospel? Would you move us into that story and see ourselves as that servant that Jesus describes, who has a beautiful master, a loving and kind master, who has forgiven so much debt, who has released us and set us free. And whatever script we have in our hearts, in our minds about that person who owes us, who has hurt us, who has cheated us, may the overwhelming grace of our master move us to release them from debt, to set them free. 
that even though we're called to still call evil for what it is, to let that person know how they've hurt us and offended us. And at the same time, we can forgive it because Jesus has forgiven us. Would you do some spiritual surgery in our hearts even as we bow before you now? And would you give us the courage to not only think about it, not only be convicted by your spirit, but to take action today?